This is a Dubai Eye 103.8 podcast. Hey, you're listening to the Bite Size Business Breakfast. Everything that Richard and I have been up to 21st of November, Monday morning, and a Monday morning without Tom, who's been down the road at Cityscape. Rich and I have been looking at what came out of COP27, particularly the loss and damage fund that is being set up. We've spoken to anchor and correspondent CNN, Eleni Giokas, who was on the ground at COP, and local environmental expert, Carl Fielder, founder and CEO of Neutral Fuels. The football is also upon us. David Allen is Cluster General Manager for Radisson Hotel Group in the UAE. We've been talking to him about hotel occupancies and prices throughout the tournament. Richard has also had the chance to speak to one of his heroes this morning, Carmine Gallo, who's a best-selling author and a keynote speaker. He is the author of a new book about communication focusing on Jeff Bezos. We'll find out why. Now let's get the latest on another big event that's been happening in the Middle East, not the FIFA World Cup in Qatar, but COP27 in Egypt. Brandy Scott, of course, you were there in Sharm el-Sheikh. Let's cross live now to someone else who was, Eleni Giokos, anchor and correspondent at CNN. Eleni, good morning. Thanks for being with us. Very good morning. Delighted to be with you today. Um, COP was incredible. I'm sure Brandy could tell you a lot of the stuff that was happening behind the scenes, but I tell you, it was... um, it was an important conversation during a pivotal time, I think, existential threats that are facing um, the world. Well, I guess the good news is that over the past few hours, we have had a deal on so-called loss and damage. This is described as a historic deal that's been struck at the UN's COP27 summit. That will see rich countries pay poorer countries for the damage and economic losses caused by climate change. Put this in context for us. How significant is this? I mean, this is absolutely significant, Um, you know, and I'm approaching this with hesitation and reticence only because we've seen so many pledges over the past few years. And so little of that money has been ending up um, to the most vulnerable nations. The loss and damage issue was broached as far back as 1991. And the biggest countries, that the biggest emitters, have always tried to stay away from that, saying it's opening a can of worms, this is going to be too much liability if we start paying and we start you know, engaging in loss and damage. What does that mean in terms of responsibility and liability? It was put aside in 2015 in Paris. It kind of made its way into some of the wording. And it is a theme that where people have walked out of meeting rooms. Now we have it firmly on the table. They want to create a mechanism and policy around this. So, by the way, this is something that has now just been agreed upon, which is absolutely historic. It is a big win for the most vulnerable countries. But what is the mechanism? So we're talking about right now voluntary funding, voluntary funding from the biggest emitters. No real mechanism in terms of how those funds will be distributed. So there are a lot of questions about how it will actually work, right? So this is just words right now, and there's a big gap between what we're saying and implementation. CNN reporting this morning that while it's great that there's a deal on loss and damage, the the flip side is, or the downside is, there wasn't a particularly significant deal 
on reducing emissions. This is what your colleagues write this morning. An attempt to address the biggest source of the planet warming emissions that are causing the climate crisis ended in a fiasco, CNN's words, after a number of nations, including China and Saudi Arabia, blocked a key proposal to phase out all fossil fuels, not just coal. What do we know about this? Yeah, I mean, look, this has always been the the contentious issue. And I think if we look back at what happened earlier this year, as soon as there was an energy crisis or energy insecurity, Europe prioritized energy security over the climate change agenda, saying, look, we're going to transition to renewables. That's on the cards. But frankly, we need to fire up coal-fired power plants again. We need to increase oil production to ensure that we do not have any um, gaps in uh, energy uh, security. Um, And this is very contradictory. When China is the outlier, which it, by the way, has been for such a long time, and no significant responsibility taken by the biggest emitters to significantly reduce emissions, then there's a different approach to emerging markets saying, look, you guys have to get out of fossil fuels. You need, you're being held to a different benchmark. And it did end in a fiasco. There were walkouts, um, especially from the emerging market space, the most vulnerable countries, because China right now is the biggest emitter globally. It overtook the United States. Um, and that's the big question. And, and really what it boils down to is, firstly, developmental issues, growth, you know, the economic side of things versus the climate agenda. And how do you balance these out? The point is, there's no balance, right? If your country or if your people are going to be suffering in some way, this is what countries are prioritizing. Well, they're saying, we've got to be realistic about our timelines. And there's also hypocrisy out of the US. There's also hypocrisy out of the European countries. And then you have countries like Saudi Arabia saying, we are going to make commitments. We want to diversify. But oil and gas are going to be part of our future. We need to figure out how to decarbonize this. 20 seconds left, Eleni. Looking forward to COP28 here in the UAE in about 12 months' time. Uh, 20 seconds, what does your crystal ball tell you we're going to be talking about there? More pledges, which is fantastic. Very little news on implementation. <laughs> That's my biggest gripe. You know, I come from South Africa and I see that nothing really filters through to emerging markets. I'm hoping um, that we'll see better implementation. I think the pledges are there. Eleni, really appreciate your time this morning. That's the voice of the anchor and correspondent for CNN, Eleni Giokos, who was at COP27 talking about that big deal agreed within the past few hours. Catch up on the business headlines with the Bite Size Business Breakfast. Where we are this morning, unsurprisingly, talking football. World Cup underway. Uh, more games today. What does it mean for our hotels here in the UAE? Very pleased to be joined now by David Allen, Redison Group Cluster General Manager. For the UAE, David, good morning. Morning, Brandy. So, we've had the first match. What kind of occupancy are you seeing here in Dubai to watch it? Uh, In Dubai in particular, occupancies are extremely high. Um, Certainly, if not full, then pushing high 80s into the 90%. Um, A lot of that, of course, is driven by visitors coming for the World Cup, but... It's not purely down to the World Cup as well. It is high season in Dubai. We've had the Grand Prix in Abu Dhabi over this weekend. We've had the DP Tour Championship at uh, Jumeirah Golf Estates. And just the the, the turn in, in tourism cycle is making Dubai in particular very busy. Right. So can we try and 
guesstimate what percentage might be football fans, those wandering through a lobby with a shirt on, humming, football's coming home under their breath. There won't be any of them in my hotel. Um, <laughs> the, <laughs> I, I would think about uh, 15, 20%. Uh, certainly in, in my hotels in Business Bay, um, we're seeing that. It's very difficult to track at the moment because most coming through are individuals. We don't have group bookings, or certainly in, in my hotels, we don't see group bookings uh, coming through. What's it all doing to room rates? As you pointed out, a number of, of big sporting events this weekend, particularly, and then, of course, we've got the Rugby Sevens coming up. What are rooms going for compared to what they were, say, a couple of weeks ago? A, a couple of weeks ago, it's reasonably similar. We're talking about uh, perhaps a 10 to 15% increase at the moment. We expect that to grow over the next week or so. Uh, certainly in our hotels, we're see, we'll see another 10 to 15% by the time we get into the meet of the tournament once the second round of a uh, group stage matches uh, start going on and also we move into the the holiday weekend here in the UAE. So what's the wave going to look like over the next month David as you said they're getting into the meat of the tournament when are you expecting visitor numbers to peak? Within the next uh, seven days uh, and across a period about 11 or 12 days from now once we get into the second week of December then the group stage finishes and then we, we certainly expect to see a thinning out of visitors directly attributed to the World Cup in Qatar. How long are people staying for? It, most people that we see have booked over the group stages. Um, there are some perhaps more optimistic than others. Uh, the, la the larger nations um, have booked for a little bit longer. Um, and we expect to see kind of shorter term pickup once we find out who's qualified for the latter stages as well. How flexible are you being on uh, rooms and refunds if teams don't qualify and people should cut their holidays a little bit short? Oh, that's a horrible question to ask me. Um, <laughs> <laughs> we, will offer, we will offer returns as long as the cancellation is done in a reasonable period of time. And we put them in our terms and conditions at the beginning. So we need at least... 24 hours notice and then it's, it's certainly that's the policy of the Radisson hotels in the UAE. If it's a group booking it would be slightly different but as I say we are not seeing a tremendous amount of group bookings in our hotels at the moment. Is it living up to your expectation David? There was a lot of speculation um, about what World Cup occupancies would look like, how far in advance people would book, what you know, sort of uh, a stronger dollar could mean for the appetite to come out here. Are you seeing what you expected to see? In terms of occupancies, we're seeing what we expected to see. In terms of average room rates, I think perhaps some hotels will be disappointed. But I, again, I would make the point that this time last year, uh, Dubai was exceptionally busy as well. And everybody was putting it down to Expo. And of course, Expo was a huge factor in that. The World Cup is a factor in this as well, but there are so many other things driving demand in the UAE and in particular in Dubai. So it depends on your outlook. My personal outlook is it's roughly where I thought it would be. Some hotels may well be doing better than others. It depends on their strategy going forward. Nobody expected to see the wash of bedrooms in Qatar. We've got many, many hotels uh, that we can see in Qatar that are running at 67%, 60 to 70, sorry, percent occupancies, you can still get accommodation in Qatar. All the talk of the cruise ships, which of course have been used, and it's a very, very clever idea, 
And we expected Qatar to be full for the majority of the World Cup, and that doesn't appear to be the case at the moment. So uh, is it becoming Dubai's gain then? Are people preferring, do you think, to stay here, maybe make a, a longer, wider holiday out of it? I think there's certainly an element of that, and I think it goes back to the Expo discussion. The Expo was a factor in bringing people here and making them extend either a business trip um, or a family holiday, um, coming into the National Day holidays, going into extending into Christmas and the New Year period as well. I also think it's very much Dubai's gain, and we can see this in our hotels in terms of food and beverage spends and uh, locals and people who've come to Dubai and are traveling in and out on a daily basis to Qatar are coming to use or intending to come and use our venues uh, to watch the other games. Talk to me about that spend, because one of the things that we have been discussing in relation to tourism lately is the stronger dollar. Have you got any hint that the stronger US dollar is making a difference to who's coming here or how much they're spending while they're in the country? We haven't seen any impact at all on that. We see the same level of spends, but what I would qualify is certainly with the, the the World Cup venues, is we expect a lot of that to be driven by uh, local residents. There will, of course, be some tourists, and as I said, there will be people who are coming in and out of Qatar for the World Cup. We don't see a diminishing spend. Our average spends in our food and beverage outlets remains at the same level as it was this time last year. What about your prices, given what we've seen in terms of inflation? Uh, we've kept our prices flat. Um, we haven't we haven't made any significant change to our prices um, across this year. Um, we didn't. In fact, we haven't made a significant change to our food and beverage pricing for about three and a half years now. Um, there were some changes pre-COVID, and then you know, we we kind of lost a couple of years in COVID, and now we're just trying to drive volume rather than drive spends in our hotels. I'm sure other restaurants are different, other restaurants and bars, sorry have different approaches. We're trying to drive volume rather than a, a premium or placing a premium on spend. Uh, before we let you go, we had an interesting chat with the AirAsia boss, Tony Fernandez, last week. He reckons that higher flight prices this season are here to stay for a while, inflation aside. What about room rates? Could the higher room rates we're seeing now stick around for a while? You know, the room rates will, the room rates will, uh, will drop in line with the market. The room rates will go down, I think, once the group stages of the World Cup end. There will, of course, be a peak in Dubai. Uh, in fact, across the whole of the UE, and we have a resort in Ras Al-Khaimah, which will be very busy for the New Year period because of the fireworks shows. And then we expect to see very strong, relatively, uh, January and February as well. And then with the earlier Ramadan this year, we'll see softening again going into the summer period. And David Allen is the Radisson Group Cluster General Manager for the UAE. Thank you very much for your time this morning. Just the highlights. This is the Bite Size Business Breakfast. Right. Let's have a look at what has come out of COP. COP27 climate change talks coming to a close in Sham al-Sheikh. Early hours of Sunday morning after all-night negotiations with a last-minute loss and damage agreement. Very pleased to be joined in the studio now by the environmental expert, Carl Fielder. He's the founder and CEO of Neutral Fuels. Carl, it's lovely to see you again. Good, Good morning. morning. So we've got almost 200 countries signing up to the first ever deal on loss and damage. Why is this so important? Well, that's a really big question, actually. Yesterday, the BBC described it as extremely disappointing. So although we have a lot of people enthusiastic for what came out of COP27. It's worth going into some of the detail. This loss and damage clause was actually initially discussed at COP18, 
more than 10 years ago, and it's taken 10 years to get wording that everybody can agree on to create some sort of fund with an unspecified amount of money with no conditions on how the money is going to be drawn down. So let's look at that, because this nearly wasn't even on the agenda at COP27. And as you say, it has its its critics, but it's also been welcomed by some. Remind us what we're talking about when we're talking about loss and damage. Well, I think the idea is essentially that the rich countries in the world, which have created most of the carbon footprint of the planet, have caused damage to the poorer countries of the world, and therefore the poorer countries should get something back. But I would actually like to refer back 33 years to a speech that Margaret Thatcher gave to the United Nations in 1989, November the 8th actually, in which she said, first point, there is no point squabbling about who's going to pay for this. She then went on to say that we needed an international series of protocols, but most importantly, she said the protocols must be binding and there must be penalties for those countries that don't adhere to what they have agreed to be bound to. And the issue that we have with all of the COPs at the moment is that it takes ages to get anybody to agree to a common text. And secondly, the common texts are not binding. So we have an agreement in principle, but as you say, it's not going to kick in for a year um, and we don't necessarily know how much it's going to be worth, who is going to give what. What needs to happen next? Well, I think we have to come back to some of the other outcomes There was a lot of pressure specifically led by India to try and include text that we would actually be reducing our reliance on fossil fuels in the similar way that COP26 said we must reduce our reliance on coal. I think for COP28 coming up, we're going to see an incredible amount of pressure uh, on uh, on us in the UAE and on other states to include, include language on what we're going to do about fossil fuels. But don't get me wrong, this isn't a binary choice. We can't have a situation as is being pushed in the UK of just stop oil. If we just stopped oil, the global economy would stop. We would actually damage poor people. We would damage every economy in the world. So what did come... Uh... <laughs> looking at the uh, the wording that has come out um, for, as you say, coal use targeting just unabated um, coal use, not necessarily going into oil and gas. Where does this put the world in terms of the use of fossil fuels? Well, the thing is that we need all the solutions to climate change, not just one. There is no silver bullet. And the sooner that everybody realises that, the better. What we do need to realise is that it's a business problem. The problem was created by businesses internationally and it needs to be addressed by businesses. Every business needs to have a three-step approach of assessing its carbon footprint, reducing its use of energy and then replacing that use of energy with green alternatives. And yet the business people aren't the ones negotiating the uh, terms of the climate deals. Yeah, you wonder that. We've had 27 COP meetings and carbon footprint has gone up 40%. The goal of the COP, as set out originally in the Rio Earth Summit, was to reduce greenhouse gas emissions, and we've gone in the opposite direction. I would hazard to guess that if it had been businesses leading the discussion, we might have got closer to the goal. Is legislation, though, the answer, which is the reason that we do have politicians around the table? That is exactly the question. Is It's, a, it's actually an agreement between business and government that's going to get us through this. Businesses are definitely driving the agenda, but also governments need to put in place targets and they need to stick to them. Well, of course, you are a man who has a business that helps companies reduce their carbon footprint. Um, So this is an area in which 
you work. What are we seeing here in the UAE in terms of companies doing that? Well, I have to say it's a mixed bag. Uh, the last two or three years, despite COVID, we've actually had a fantastic increase in people's focus. The announcement that the UAE is going for a net zero goal by 2050 is fantastic, but the number of businesses that realise that this is going to affect them seems to not be 100%. I, I can't imagine why, but people are going to work today thinking, oh, well, we'll put it off till next year or we'll think about it in 10 years' time. This is something that requires a strategy and it has to have specific goals that are achievable. I, I've got meetings today with organizations that I've been talking to for eight years who still haven't done anything, major global brands. And I just find it incredible that they can't move across the agenda and actually get something underway. Thanks very much for joining us this morning on the Business Breakfast. We're speaking to Cal Fielder, founder and CEO of Neutral Fuels. This is the Bite Size Business Breakfast, exclusively on DubaiEye1038.com. Right then, let's get inside the mind of one of the world's richest people, Jeff Bezos, the founder of Amazon. A new book is out called The Bezos Blueprint. It's written by Carmine Gallo, who's a best-selling author, keynote speaker, CEO advisor and Harvard instructor. We'll speak to Carmine in a second. First of all, though, let's hear from Jeff Bezos. This is him speaking just a few days ago in an interview with CNN about, of all people, Dolly Parton. Well, uh, look at what she's done and and how she's led her life. And the way she's done it, these bold things, always with civility and kindness. She's a unifier. You know, we have big problems in the world. And the way to get big problems done is you have to work together. We have too many examples in the world of conflict and people using ad hominem attacks on social media and so on and so on. You won't find Dolly Parton doing that. And that is why Jeff Bezos has donated $100 million to Dolly Parton's charities. Joining us now on the line via Microsoft Teams is Carmine Gallo. Carmine, good morning. Thanks for being with us. Richard, hello. Brandy, I see that you're there as well. Hi. Uh, The last time I was interviewed for Dubai Eye was at the Emirates Festival of Books, which I remember fondly, and I hope to be invited back. But I'm always inspired by my trips to the country. Oh, you would always be very, very welcome, Carmine. I remember your presentation very well. Um, But let's talk about Jeff Bezos. Why did you pick him? Because you're a communication guy. You're not a strategy guy. Mm -hmm. You're not a billionaire guy. You're a communication guy. And we were, Brandy and I were chatting earlier. When I think of great communicators, I don't think of Jeff Bezos. He's not the most charismatic guy in the world. So why did you pick him? You don't think of him like Steve Jobs, who I wrote a book about, how Steve Jobs delivered presentations. Steve Jobs had that... you know, the the reputation of being a charismatic communicator. I've written books on how to give a TED Talk. I'm arguing that Jeff Bezos, the strategies that he employed when it comes to communication, not only fueled Amazon's growth, but also created a company from scratch that touches our lives each and every day and has more impact than possibly any other single company other than the company you work for. But the story is irresistible. Here is a a visionary who has an idea, uh, very much tracks along the lines of the history of the UAE as well. Visionaries and entrepreneurs who have an idea, people, skeptics, naysayers said it can't be done, but they stick to their vision. They are relentless in the pursuit of excellence, and they build something that literally transforms the world. 
When it comes to Bezos, there are very specific leadership and communication strategies that many people don't even realize he employed and pioneered to fuel Amazon's astonishing growth. But so many that other companies and former Amazonians have adopted to build their own companies or to grow their own startups. That's what I wanted to focus on. And I, I think it surprises a lot of people that Bezos was an astonishing communicator, a storyteller. And look, Richard, anyone who bans PowerPoint, who does that? As soon as I learned that Jeff Bezos banned PowerPoint and replaced it with writing, I knew there was something there to pursue. And that's interesting and, and particularly ironic given that PowerPoint, of course, is based in his hometown of Seattle across the road from yes. Microsoft headquarters. Just to remind us what he did, because it's nearly 20 years ago. What, why yeah, did he ban PowerPoint of, uh, and what did he replace it with? In July of 2004, in four, Jeff Bezos uh, sent out an email after he read an essay that uh, reflected PowerPoint not being the best communication tool. It's not a decision-making tool. Now, that does not mean that no one at Amazon uses PowerPoint. They still do when they're giving uh, customer presentations. But he replaced it with writing. Right, Amazon is now a writing culture. He wants to see real memos with titles and paragraphs and sentences and nouns and verbs. And he became an extraordinary writer. He wrote 24 shareholder letters over the span of his tenure as CEO. Many venture capitalists and successful entrepreneurs who I know today, especially in Silicon Valley, still refer to those letters as models of clarity. How do you take something so complicated as Amazon and online retail and uh, uh, web services and cloud computing and make them simple to understand, really simple to understand, down to an eighth grade level. Bezos used short words to talk about hard things. The more complicated the topic, the easier he made it understand. Those are very valuable communication tactics that we can all use to improve our professional career. You say he also used symbols very effectively, in particular the famous desks. Oh, the, the, this is something, again, I'm, I'm excited by it because I never had an opportunity in some of the other books to get into something like this until I discovered that Bezos used metaphors and analogies very well, and then he took those metaphors and he turned them into something physical and tangible that always reminded his teams of his vision. So people would walk into Amazon in the early years and find desks made out of wooden doors that they would buy at a local hardware store and they put them on stilts they were just doors they symbolized frugality because that's one of their core values they have to keep prices low in order to attract more customers but the other interesting symbol are the empty chairs in early meetings jeff bezos had an empty chair in every meeting people would ask um are we waiting for somebody? Why the empty chair? The empty chair was constant in meetings because it represented the most important person in the room whose voice was not heard in the room, and that was the customer. So he took these metaphors and turned them into physical symbols that reminded people of the values that they must share if they are to grow and to grow strongly. Again, He's always thinking about storytelling, communication, and I know it's intentional. It was intentional from the first day. He, he had to explain concepts 
simply because the first question he, he would receive when he was pitching Amazon was, what's the Internet? When someone doesn't even know what the Internet is and now you're asking them to put a credit card and to trust you and to send you a product, that's communication. It's not just leadership and building a company. It's how do we communicate to a broad audience so that they, they're engaged and they trust. Carmine, 30 seconds left with you. Breaking news within the past 20 minutes. Bob Iger is back again as Disney CEO. Your 20-second your, your take on Bob Iger as a leader and a communicator. Bob Iger, I have cited in, in at least one of my books and in my articles that I write for uh, Forbes and Inc. and other platforms. I, do, I have cited Bob Iger because he is an extraordinary speaker. When he gives an interview, he does something that Jeff Bezos does as well. Watch him and listen to him. He'll break things up into three. He'll give you three initiatives that Disney is going to do or three changes that he's going to implement. It's a fascinating thought, but we've got to go to a break. Thanks very much to Carmine Gallo, author, joining us on the line from California, author of The Bezos Blueprint. You've been listening to a Dubai Eye 103.8 podcast. To enjoy lots more from Dubai Eye in the United Arab Emirates, just go to DubaiEye1038.com or find them wherever you normally get your podcasts.